Hi, my name is Tiga, and you're listening to Last Party on Earth. Over the next hour, I'll be asking the ultimate DJ question. It's your last set ever. What do you play? This week, I'm chatting with DJ, producer, and industry icon, Pete Tong. There are few individuals in the world of dance music who can claim the kind of influence Pete has had over the past 20 years, and I'm one of them. This is Last Party on Earth. Last. Party. Party. On Earth. If you're into dance music, Pete Tong is more than just an institution. I would suggest that he has introduced more music to more people than anybody. And really, when you think about it, that's about as cool as it gets. We cover funk soul dancers, Ibiza after parties, and of course, psychedelics. Enjoy this episode of Last Party on Earth. Apologies for the sound quality in advance. We were forced to move our tables a few times while rich babies screamed at Nobu waitresses. Pete, I'm so excited to be here. I have a million questions. Uh, I genuinely have so many things I want to ask and learn. But we are here today a little more specifically to talk about DJing and your dream party, which in this particular case is also going to be your last party ever, um, to find out a little bit about what it would sound like, what it would look like, and what it would feel like. So uh, thank you for being here and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, To start with, your career, obviously, there's a million different directions we could go in, and there's so many things to talk about. But when I look at it, I see central to everything is really a music lover and a true A&R man in the sense of, you know, the sense of discovery, hunting for records, trying to find records, and then sharing records. And it seems at the core of everything. Where does it come from? What's an early memory of that feeling of finding something amazing and wanting to play it for your friends or your parents? Or I think, um, I mean, I was always musical, apparently. I was a kid, you know, for very young, like banging on things and like strumming things and like attracted to music. My dad was... I wouldn't quite call him a collector, but he had a collection. Um, and it was a passion of his to buy albums and singles. And, and there was music in the house. There was there was records around that I was mesmerized by the, the sleeves, actually. Um, he was into Santana, so there was some quite exotic <laughs> um, covers. Um, and he got the Stones albums and the um, Beatles albums. And, yeah, it just kind of fascinated me. I was, I was just instantly attracted to it. I also had a cousin who was a collector and a serious Motown collector and to the to the point of catalog numbers and making sure that he'd got everyone that you know was ever released so those two had a big influence on me you know I was probably eight nine ten something like that um and I just it just always stuck with me I mean I I I got obsessed you know I, I didn't want to go to the toy shop I wanted to go to the record shop and I didn't just I just liked piles of records you know and the way they were organized and then I wanted to get behind the counter and learn how they were filed and I I like the plastic covers that they put the records in you know that that was the master copy and the sleeve was in the record shop and it was empty I was just obsessed by all this stuff and it just it just went from there and I at school I was in a I got into a band um I was I was I was a fan of music as well so I was I was I was into T-Rex. That was my big thing, like Mark Boland. So the first record I got given was um, Rider White Swan. I think I might have even kind of taken my dad's copy and called it my own. And then um, the first album I ever bought was Slider, which was oh, that's a good one. T-Rex album. And then I went backwards and got Electric, you know, Boogie, whatever it was called, the, the album before. Um, Electric Warrior. Electric Warrior. And then um, with the with the Marshall amp on the front, um, and I got, you know, I got really into them. And there was a big school ground like competition, like you're either into Slade or T-Rex. And I was into T-Rex. And then the band was like, we kind of morphed into playing like Deep Purple covers. The first song I could ever play on like bass guitar or keyboard was Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we had this band and, were, and we were playing school discos badly and then i saw a dj one day so this was probably when i was like 13 or 14 and i saw like they had a dj come in it was the first time i'd ever seen two turntables and a mic in between and someone playing someone else's records and i just instantly it was like i literally dropped what i was doing and then my dad had brought me a drum kit and i used to sit in the front room listening to kind of the who and led zeppelin trying to be john bonham or whatever so i got i got quite into it but the minute i saw a dj it was like i dropped that 
I want to I want to what do that. What do you think it is about DJing that attracted you? I, I have a theory. A lot of people I know for a lot of people who never quite knew what to do with themselves at parties. Well, kind, kind of kind of <laughs> bit of that. I mean, I, I think most DJs. Um, I mean, I could go off on a tangent there because yeah, a lot of my I have to be careful about kind of what came first, but to be cool, you know, when I was a teenager, actually the cool kids were the dancers. Okay. So it's to make a name for yourself. Um, it, and if you were a face, you know, out there, it, it was because you were a great dancer. Um, and that, you know, I grew up in Kent and I was in a village actually called um, Hartley. And the nearest town to us was Gravesend and Dartford. Dartford was where I was born. That's where Mick Jagger <laughs> was born. Um, but my dad had a, he was a turf accountant, so he ran betting shops. And um, his his main shop was in Gravesend. So we'd be in Gravesend a lot. And eventually we actually moved there as well. And then the pubs in Gravesend were full of kids that actually were going up to London to, to the Lacey Lady and the Gold Mine and like Crackers and like the early kind of underground clubs, basically like soul, jazz, funk. And they were bringing me back records. And, and Gravesend was a very mixed um, ethnic community. We had a lot of West Indian families. We had a lot of Indian families. And I, that, that brought reggae to me really quickly. Um, so, But anyway, the people that were the cool people in that bunch were the star dancers. They were going up and like doing dance competitions. You... No, I, wasn't, I couldn't dance. So I was, I was much more comfortable. That, that I kind of gravitated making, to making hiding them behind dance. the DJ stand. Yeah. So I think there was some of that. But I... Th- getting back to your question i think just making a better noise you know playing mm. other people's records because i had this fascination with records and i was i was kind of collecting records myself and then at parties like at my parents you know i, w- I would be the one wanting to put the records onto the the gramophone yeah, no, I, you know i, I had I, a gramophone you know where you you know with the, that long unit that looked like yeah, a wanting to wanting to control the volume yeah basically a, yeah, <laughs> i exactly. understand that exactly you know when i you know a lot of people that start very young at some point, you know, you must have made the leap early, which might have seemed obvious to you, but it's not obvious to all people, to from the love of music and collecting music to, I guess, kind of hustling and being entrepreneurial and, you know, moving those things into, I won't call it a career at such an early stage, but do you remember an early time where you thought, okay, this could be, you know, trying to make it more than just kind of a, yeah, I mean, a I, hobby? I was, um... I was lucky enough to get sent to a public school, which in English means a private school, <laughs> um, as opposed to a state school. So I was pay- it was paid school, and I was I was a boarder at a very young age. I was sent super young because my mum and dad um, didn't always get on so well. And yeah, believe it or not, I was like seven or eight when I went boarding. So oh God. I would listen to the radio under the pillow as well, and that was another white, you know, Radio Luxembourg, early pirate radio stations like Radio Caroline. Um, and that's another way I, I kind of got into music. So um, and found music as a as a kind of solace, you know. And then I would I wasn't a full time boarder. I was what they call a weekly boarder. So I would go home on the weekends. And I think another it's a bit of a dark side of me <laughs> is that when my mum and dad were rowing and he was a, he was a drinker, um, I would run up to my bedroom, put my headphones on. So I had mm. a pair of headphones. Was another way of kind of switching off the noise and kind of going using music as a bit of an escape. So. That was a, that was another way in, and I of identifying with music. So, yeah, I was at public school, and I was pretty focused all the way through what are now called GCSEs. Back then, they were called O levels. So I did I did well. I got like seven O levels. But by the time I hit what they call a sixth form, the DJing kind of bug had got me. The music bug had got me, and um, I think my parents thought I was going to become a civil engineer or something, or get a get a proper job. But I definitely started to get distracted and I did become more and more kind of entrepreneurial. And before I ever, ever did weddings or bar mitzvahs, I did, I actually started running my own clubs, believe it or not. When I was like, I did kind of youth club stuff. So we'd hire like a village hall and I'd, I'd make posters and I'd go around sticking them on trees in plastic, in plastic covers with drawing pins. And I remember the first ever um, gig we did, um, I think I was like 15 or something like that. And, and, um, we got back to my, our house and my dad had helped me set it up and he had a, a minder kind of security guy um, that did the door for me and did the money. And we got all the money out on the kitchen table after it was like it was like 100 pounds or something. And we and I'd made a profit, you know, with my first gig. And 
So I, I rapidly kind of went into the kind of transit van um, and sound system route because that's that's basically what you did back then um, to kind of make a name for yourself. So so having a sound system was again very much associated with being a DJ. So it did. I didn't think about it at the time like that, and no one certainly used the word on, entrepreneurial. But to make it happen, I had to kind of literally make it happen by. Yeah, you by creating you the create party. your own yeah. gigs. You create, and, your and own. then later, a little bit later, then I started getting bookings for kind of weddings and and stuff like that, <laughs> and Greek weddings and bar mitzvahs, and but all the time looking to to kind of do what I really wanted to do, which was this thing of finding music and sharing it with people. Um, so I got a pub residency at a place called the Nelson in Gravesend, which for a good year or two became a very much a kind of. It was the social club where everyone gathered. And because I was still only 16 or something, everyone else was like 17, 18, 19. So they were going to kind of proper clubs up in London. And I was, when they came back, the gathering spot was me at the Nelson, like where I was doing like two or three nights a week. And they'd bring me records. So, you know, my first, I was getting brought the reggae records from the kind of West Indian kids, like early, like Dennis Brown and Gregory Isaacs and Tapazuki and stuff like that. And then the Soul Kids were turning me on to American imports. It was like Lonnie Liston Smith and, and, and jazz funk, you know, basically, and Donald Byrd and um, just the whole notion of like just this whole different world. So I very rapidly went from kind of playing, you know, T-Rex to gravitating almost like unknowingly towards funk and soul. Mm. You know, I, I realized that playing a James Brown record or a Funkadelic record at a party seemed to get a better reaction than playing the suite or T-Rex. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then came this next kind of more sophisticated layer of like starting to realize that there was this um, secret world of like this other music that you had to be, you know, in the know to know about. So, and then I started to become aware that there was a scene around this music and there was DJs in this scene like people like Chris Hill um, was the kind of king of the, of the soul mafia and then there was um, this guy Froggy who had the sound system what's the song mafia the soul mafia so there was a group of DJs and, and they were running the scene and I suddenly like I wanted to be part of that gang and recognised by that gang um, and I worked my way into that over the course of the late 70s going into early early 80s so yeah and I did it by actually running my own club and booking them. And so they met me, and then they, and I, I ended up buying a sound system off of Froggy that he was, like, discarding as he was upgrading. So I kind of worked my way into with this gang. I guess moving a little bit forward to, because we're going to be talking about your dream party, what's an early party that had a massive influence or an influence on you in terms of, you know, the archetype of what is a great party? I think um, through the Soul Mafia guys, I, I learned about the cult of the DJ. Mm. So I learned that, um, you know, a few hundred kids would go and see Chris Hill every week religiously at the Lacey Lady or the, a place called the Goldmine in, in Canvey Island in Essex. And that the way, you know, he played music that wasn't available on the radio, wasn't available anywhere else. Um, he was a a superstar in the booth in the sense of people did what he said you know he sung on the microphone um and he was a very charismatic figure and it was he was like the pied piper you know like he was the kind of shaman of the group and that was the first time you know and he, he even wore a gold sparkly jacket you know and it was but it was all cool it was you know soul soul and jazz funk and, so um, as early as that so it's pre pre so this is, house. This, this oh yeah this is, is this all is way happening before. In, the, in the late 70s early 80s and then um, Froggy, who was the most technical of the group, and he, he'd, he'd gone to New York um, and he'd gone to the Paradise Garage and he'd seen Larry Levan. And he, I mean, you just got to realize this is like, this is the breakthrough moment. This is the first time any one of our group had seen someone mix two records together, right? And have two copies of the same record. Like, so this was just like, and then there was this journalist called James Hamilton that used to write for a very big music paper called Record Mirror. And he had a column that was specifically about this scene. And he got to go to New York as well. And, and he reported back on, you know, the early days of, of what was going on there with around Larry. And um, he used to write about David Mancuso a lot. So I was like, I've got to go. I've got to get to New York somehow. So um, I, ma I managed to get, get myself out there probably like 1979, 1980. Didn't really know anyone. Um, well, I was writing for a magazine called Blues and Soul, so I had some contacts. And then I had a, I had a guy um, at Billboard called Brian Chin that I used to um, 
correspond with. So I, I went to um, oh, Danceteria, the first real proper New York club I ever went to, which is Mark Caymans was the resident. Oh, yeah. And then, I, then, I, then he took me to the Paradise Garage. Um, so I went a few times there. And, and, you know, clearly very formative experiences because it was just... Is it everything... Everything's it supposed to, to kind be. of come together. I mean, I think that just the sheer scale and industry of the garage just blew my mind because um, everything was just every, everything was just maximised, like being on some kind of trip, and then to see you know Larry performing in the in the booth and the way he played, and um, yeah, it was it was yeah. So just for somebody, I mean, obviously it's like that's gospel now. It's something we all. It's like yeah. a, it's almost like yeah. a myth for someone who was actually there. I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but how? Uh, how does it compare to a modern party? Is it comparable? I mean, how Larry, everybody says, you know, he's like a god and everything. Is it, how would it compare to a, a really good party last week? Um, or is it not? No, I think this is, I, I'm, not, I'm not a snobbish. I'm not, I'm not one of these people that says it was better in the old days. No, I, I mean, I, I was at an after party, you know, just last week at the cave with Solomon and Dixon playing. Mm. I was probably there for about six hours. The party went for 19. They're playing to like two or 300 people. That's pretty special. Yeah. And, there's, and there's, not, there's a lot in common, yeah. to be honest. There's probably um, more in common. Well, probably more in common. So I, I think the raw, the raw, you know, when you cut it down to the, the raw basics, what was good then is good now. Yeah. And not a lot has changed. Um, obviously, the type of music's changed. Mm-hmm. But no, not, you know, the spirit of it is still pretty. Yeah. Pretty, so so let's, pretty similar, let's, uh, yeah. let's get to some music. Let's hear your opening track. So I always, my brain always explodes. I mean, I'm used to being in your position in this interview. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always been uncomfortable with anyone asking me to name, you know, my it's favorite, very difficult. My I favorite admit, records it's, it's or my, um, you know, and to ask what I would play at my last party was like, I had foam coming out of my ears. Um, I apologize. But I've, le- <laughs> but I've learned a, a skill. And I took a new attitude, you know, a few years ago to these questions, which was actually just... Don't overthink it yeah. and go with your gut instincts and almost the first thing that comes to your head. So, you know, that's a, bit, a really honest record for me. I mean, it was, it was such a special record for me. I've got so many amazing memories around that record. And it just kind of sums me up in so many ways. It's got the best of everything. It's like lilting, melancholic. It's a little bit awkward, actually, of a record. But well, with, a, the, with absolute, the orgasm an, an absolute <laughs> orgasm class, classic, you know, so... Um, and it's just it's timeless as well so and I think it's not a closing record but it's a pretty good way of announcing yourself so yeah <laughs> it's Blaze and Break for Love so uh, this morning at 7 in the morning and we are in Ibiza with the sun coming up I listened to Break for Love which I hadn't heard in a long time and it's I mean it's it's ridiculously good it's yeah. just it's yeah it's amazing and it, it, it shivers and it's got I don't know it's got everything um do do you still get nervous when you DJ? Um, not really, but I I get nervous sometimes, hardly ever before, to be honest. But I sometimes get nervous when I'm DJing. Do you think while because, you're DJing? Because I because I think yeah, I do, I do, and I've 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 gone through a myriad of um, different methods and styles, and 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 something I, I talk a lot about right now with my wife. Um, as to the reason why I'm doing it, you know, yeah. you get to my age at 58, it's not a party anymore, but we are the life and soul of the party. We spent, I've spent my whole life since, you know, teenager associating, you know, being in the party and like coming at, at the other end of my career now, it's like, what am I doing it for? You know, it's like, apart from it pays some of the bills. So I'm, I'm, I, I do think about that a lot and I, I'm constantly also changing up in my head what I'm meant to be doing as well, like when I'm playing, you know. Are you thinking this while you're actually playing? No, just between, you know. So uh, there's, there's one thing I've learned. I mean, the more prepared I am, I never like that idea of like, oh, I'm going to have a set and I'm going to play it in that order. And, you know, if I ever used to do that, it used to go wrong. Um, but I do, I think planning sets and really thinking about what I'm going to be doing is actually really, really helps me when mm. I have the time. And I get frustrated sometimes when I don't have the time and you just turn up and play. And obviously, you know, a lot of times that works great, you know, but the times it doesn't work, I kind of kick myself and curse at myself. So I wouldn't say nervous, but I'm, I'm starting to um, rethink the whole process of what I'm doing up there and, and what I want to say when I play, you know, so, without making too deep. And I just, the other thing is I know 
I know so much, but I know so little in the sense that I get bombarded with so much music. I kind of almost forget yeah. how great some music is. And I, and I get very, I get in the habit of also only playing new stuff. And I think I'm about to go on a major bender of like really starting to dig deep again. You know, I was um, going to ask yeah. you that. I think that's a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a bigger challenge almost the, the more history you have. It, it, yeah. it would seem that it would be easy, but... You know, you're trying to it's, balance it's also, the new. No, I, I was watching. I was. I mean, I'm a massive fan of Sven Bath, and he'll he'll come up later in this chat. But I do think there's something we've lost. We're going from vinyl to digital somehow with vinyl, even though it was heavy and it fills loads of boxes and you can't carry them everywhere. It was easier to go back. <laughs> yeah. Because you can like look at the sleeve and it brings back a memory. I just think when I played vinyl, I probably mixed it up more. I didn't just like, I didn't go to the record shop, buy 20 records and only play those 20 records. Mm. They just, they became part of this bigger thing. But with digital, even though we're meant to be able to search and find even better than ever, it tends to kind of, whatever comes in last, pushes the old stuff further down. So, um, and then I was with, just watching Dixon and Solomon the other night, I was just like, the one joy, I, I, I'm not in a position really, I don't want to be going off and doing 19 hour after parties every week but there is an amazing bonus of doing that because you you have to dig deep yeah <laughs> and it always fascinates me I'm, I'm much more interested when i go and see everyone else play uh, when they play that record that's 10 years old mm. or 20 years old and it sounds amazing those are the, the those are the ones i'm i'm like either looking over their shoulder or shazamming <laughs> yeah well i think there's there's a whole host of problems that came with the digital thing yeah. you know you don't have the same limitations it was nice when you could you know you chose 80 records yeah. and you had to deal with it yeah, and it yeah. forces interesting programming decisions and yeah i mean i mean i, I think i was a better dj when i played vinyl yeah. i don't i don't like to admit it but, right. <laughs> but uh, um yeah and it's interesting too how how I'm sometimes envious, and for you this must be just way more the case, I'm sometimes envious of the people that don't have the history with the older records, because they're kind of free, you know, an older record is just the record, it doesn't yeah. have the connection to when you first heard it, yeah, yeah. or the parties, I, there's so many old records I won't play, because in my mind it's like, oh, they're, I did that yeah. already, yeah, 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 but they yeah. haven't, they've been replaced by something new, but not necessarily better, yeah, anyway, yeah, so are you like self-critical? Are you hard on yourself? And do you analyze things? You know, do you go home to the hotel after and break <laughs> down what happened? You know, because you know, I see some people, it seems like they don't do it at all, and I know other people that really beat themselves up over it. Um, I, I don't really beat myself up, but I, I get frustrated if... Because um, I I, I, even though I've been doing it a long time, I don't... I'm probably one of the reasons I keep doing it is I never really burnt out. Because so, I always had a day job during the kind of you know the real boom years um I, I never kind of went off the rails i went on the road for six months so i never i was never one of these djs that really does you know five nights a week traveling all over the world so when i do play i want to make it great so i, I get yeah i wouldn't say i beat myself up but i get i can get frustrated for sure if things if i because i feel it's like a wasted opportunity you know time time <laughs> time's running out or like I've, mm. I've made a massive effort to go and do something and leave the family and like and and if it's a waste of time, you know, I still want to DJ because for the art side more, or even even more than the money side, you know. So mm. if you know what I mean, yeah, no, of course, <laughs> of course, yeah. I do. yeah. What? Um, so you've been there. You've been there with me. Sometimes we have to turn up at festivals, and it's like they can be frustrating sometimes. You know that you're, you're just a number on a bill, and like you know. You kind of you leave it sometimes wondering if anyone ever noticed you were there. You know, it's one of the reasons yeah. I'm doing this yeah, and interviewing yeah. DJs is yeah. because I actually I don't feel people talk about it very much, and sometimes I don't know if the millions of people out there have yeah. an idea of the struggles. Maybe a strong yeah. word, but yeah. exactly like you said, you know, there's bills where you don't know where you fit. There's times where you play and you you don't know if it had impact. Yeah. Uh, how much do you try to fit in as opposed to just make your... These are all the things that I think we all wrestle with. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, nice I'm, to hear I'm that a, everyone yeah. does, kind of. Cause sometimes no, no, I think that we could go off on a whole different tangent. I think mm -hmm. there is a whole, definitely a massive dark side of DJing where people do struggle with all sorts of things associated with DJing. Um, and one of them is the anxiety of playing well and, um, and delivering and stuff like that. But... You know, we were all quite safe when the, you know, in a club that where it was run by like a great DJ or a great, um, you know, host. To me, clubs were just families, you know, families of people on a mission. That's the way it all started all over. All the best clubs in the world are basically very similar in that sense that it's a group of friends 
you know, someone was was trying to change things. So when we play for those people, we're always okay. But I think as the scene got bigger and bigger and bigger, people start doing it for different reasons. Clubs start opening for different reasons, and and festivals grow into the monsters they become. And then you can lose touch with, you know, why, why you know. Yeah, I think, and we're guilty of it too. We start yeah. doing things yeah, yeah. for different yeah, reasons. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of your own tracks that you play at your own party, if you're, you're, you're well, forced, is right? pick one of your own yeah. productions that you'd like to play. Um, it's funny because I, I came from a time where DJs didn't really make records. Um, we just, we were the curators, we were the selectors, we were the people that were playing other people's records. And you know right back at the very beginning it was very difficult to make records like pre house music and acid house you know in the 80s you had to be a musician or like someone had to put you in a studio it was like so it all you know i was i was late to making records and then by the time i got on um you know the radio i was also very busy so you know the formative times of house music starting in the uk in the late 80s and where we had a lot of diy kind of people again I, I, I didn't really participate in that because I was actually the guy on the radio breaking the records so um, but I got fascinated by the technology once we you know Logic and these programs started appearing I kind of taught myself and I was like became determined that it was, it was always, to me it was like painting so I started making beats and never really putting them out um, so it's always been a bit of a stop start thing for me um but when I do, you know, occasionally when I do put one out, I'm quite proud of it. So I, I've struck up a, an odd kind of partnership with this guy, John Monkman. Um, we're, we're so different to each other. He was a he was a psytrance DJ who I met weirdly through Brian Ferry. I was doing a, a remix for Brian Ferry with, with another guy. And this he, he's a very eccentric character. And we kind of I met him in Brian Ferry's studio in London and we kept in contact and we started kind of just sharing music together and um we get together for very short amounts of time but always something seems to good to come out of it so um this was one of the the early tracks that we did together called phoenix that came out on compact a few years ago so it's um yeah it's me and john monkman i had never heard that record actually (laughs) no and i love i I listened to it as well this morning i loved it when i when i heard that record i i thought listening to it there's a lot of emotion in it yeah you know and and i was thinking because this is something i've been talking to a lot of my dj friends about is kind of the role of emotion in dance music and because there's different opinions on it. you know some people are much more just about energy just about a physicality just about the percussive kind of side and you i think consistently are drawn to you know emotion in records and I think it's quite a nice thing, actually, kind of a brave thing. I, I envy it sometimes. <laughs> I do. I, I think it's that because it's quite pure. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I guess I, 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 that, that's in my genes. I guess I was just always attracted to music that gives you goosebumps or makes you cry or, yeah. you know, um, brings out emotions. I mean, I guess that's why I, I, people always say to me, what, what, what are you? And I, I guess at heart, I was always a soul boy. But mm. I can find soul in a pretty minimal techno record, sadness as well as much as um you know marvin gay you know back in the day so yeah I, I guess that is that's true that's you know and i'm a big one for film scores as well and um you know i'm a huge admirer of um of, of some of those composers when they can do you know people like hans zimmer and oh you God. look at his um interstellar soundtrack i mean i don't know how many records i've heard since that came out in the electronic world that have influenced by those note progressions and chord mm. progressions and stuff like that so yeah, that's what I'm attracted to. So peak time, uh, peak time actually kind of means something different for. I mean, yeah. peak of the party. What is a record that you will trust in that moment? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't kind of overthink this or didn't want to get too clever with it. But obviously, I've been involved with uh, this orchestra project for the last few years. So working with um, Jules Buckley and the Heritage Orchestra, where we were able to go back and reconstruct and rearrange and replay some like house and techno classics and this particular record is a is a high point in the show i think it sums up everything we've been talking about in terms of emotion as well and it tells you a lot about um the island the only irony of this record is it's called cafe del mar which was actually a chill out bar (laughs) that almost invented chill out and this isn't really a chill well it's not a chill out record but it's got a moment (laughs) in the middle of it so it's um I mean, I could play the original. I could play. We could even play Tale of Us's. Um, oh yeah, the new one. Remix, or we could play um, the Pete Tong Heritage Orchestra version. But um, it's it's Energy Fifty Two and Cafe Del Mar. 
I saw a clip of you, a live a clip of you perform with the orchestra yeah. performing it live, and you looked like you looked really happy. Like you looked really. It was. I, I really liked it. I thought it was. Anyway, I thought it was quite. Yeah, it's been a. It's been an unbelievable um, different chapter of my life and my career. I mean, it definitely wasn't planned. I was fortunate enough to be invited to curate a prom, which you know, at the Royal Albert Hall in the summer of 2015, and I was. I was introduced to Jules Buckley, and and we we got kind of had a blind date together to plan this show. We had six months to plan it at the beginning of that year, and we did it in July. It happened to be the 20th anniversary of Radio One coming to Ibiza, so we, it was a completely out of my comfort zone. I'd never done anything like that before. I didn't know what you were meant to do, and I we we just set about it, and it, it started with the basics. It was like, well, let's pick. I'll pick the music of what we're going to play. Whose idea? The the original idea to do orchestral well, the original arrangement. idea was it was the, the proms is a you know it's, it's a series of classical concerts that happen at the Royal Albert Hall every summer for over a hundred years, and what they wanted to do, you know, the head of the proms at that particular year was trying to drive a more contemporary approach to the proms, and they didn't just want like this older crowd getting older all the time. They wanted to try and attract a younger audience. So they, they're very much part of the BBC as well. Um, so they, instead of working with Radio 3, they'd approach Radio 1 to see if we would be interested in doing you know, something that would be relevant to our audience. And, that's, and we came up with that idea of um, celebrating 20 years of Ibiza by getting an orchestra to replay great Ibiza tracks. So I started out with a list of about 70 and then oh my God. it was going to be a minute of each track. And then Jules said to me, you don't realize how long it takes to write out the parts for 65 players. He said, we'll be doing it for five years. So I cut it down to 20. And then I, I kind of put it in Ableton and worked out all the keys and like the transitions. And the, the genius part of it is at the show that we, I wanted the orchestra to basically play nonstop. So it, effectively you're having the orchestra like mix tracks together. Mm. So with the transitions as well. And, then, and we managed to get these blocks working. And I, and I also wanted to reflect the chill-out side of Ibiza. I didn't want it to just be 70 minutes of banging start to finish. So it flows as like this journey and this show. And within five minutes of the first, or a few minutes of the first song, which is right here, right now, by Fatboy Slim, the whole audience in the Albert Hall stood up, like 5,000 people, never sat down. And we just looked at each other as like, something's going on here. And then when we finished it and went backstage, first thing we said to each other was like we've got to do this again you know we never there was never a plan to do it again but we we wanted to do it again it actually took us um almost a year and a half before we got out again and that was december 16 we basically announced shows at the beginning of 2016 we had one arena because it was so expensive to do it as well it's like 65 people it looks like quite a quite so we had to so basically what happened is we had this promoter that believed in us and we um, we worked out that it would only work at like the at an arena level, which is twenty thousand people. But we said if we sold the lower bowl of the O2, it would pay for itself and we'd be fine. And that would be eleven thousand people, which was was unthinkable that we would do that. And um, I, we announced it on it was like March the first. I went on breakfast television, and by the time I got home from Manchester, we'd sold out the the lower bowl. And by the end of the day, we sold out the whole thing. So then it was like, oh my god, like we've got to get another date. But you're, you know, I think Justin Bieber had the date after us, and you know we couldn't get two nights at the O2. So we ended up lucky enough. We got Manchester, Birmingham, and and London. We sold them all out. So we did three shows in sixteen, and we ended up doing about fifteen shows last year. And we took it to the Hollywood Bowl. We took it to Australia. To um, it's like the furthest you can get from a USB stick. A US, like it's the furthest you can get from just walking into a club with a USB stick. It really is. It was like I, I liken it to, um, it's like the difference between the normal driving a normal car and and getting in a Formula One car for the first time as a DJ because you, you just got so much power on stage. Mm. And they're not. I'm not playing anything. They're they're not like playing along to me playing a backing track. Everything's generated um, by the orchestra and the band, and I'm actually being cued by Jules. I'm playing in like electronic stems and a few loops and percussion things. So. When you just said that about power on stage, I'm just curious, like, what is your general view about the DJ standing up there? I mean, what's your ideal of how visible you should be? And 
you know, because there's such a massive spectrum now between, you know, guys that... I remember when I started DJing, I'm sure, like, you know, there were DJs in a closet. I mean, you weren't even sometimes in the same room. And now, you know, you go all the way up to the the EDM model. What's What's your take for yourself? What do you consider your own choice if you could you know your choice how um, how big should you be up there yeah i'm not i'm definitely more of the hiding (laughs) kind of style i think i was i was shy you know i I still am to a certain extent and i think that's what djs were we hid in the corner because we weren't the dancers um and like thinking back apart from my story about chris hill and his shiny jacket where he was more flamboyant you know larry levan was hiding in a in a box in the corner of the room um in the shadows sometimes you didn't even know if it was him playing you know do you think DJing's now attracting a different yeah, personality whole, I mean, type because well, it, it has it has done for 10 years with I the guess. whole EDM thing and I think credit to the EDM guys on the good side is that they took the whole thing to another level in terms of performance you know and, and to be on those main stages with all the paraphernalia and the pyrotechnics it it kind of evolved into a different thing you know and I, is, I, I was definitely one of those people you know when people started saying oh they just press buttons or they just play pre-recorded sets i was like well so what it's like they are they're doing something yeah, they're also they're they've doing also something. learned how to project for, yeah, yeah, for they're also making people. half the music if not all the music they're playing and it's a completely different thing it's like that's that and like i'd rather be in, in dc10 with 30 people around mm. me kind of that's that's all about almost hiding isn't it it's like well, for you, you're one of those people, you're in a slightly tricky position because you obviously have that impulse and then at the same time, you know, you're, you're breaking huge records yeah. and you're, you know, you're in, yeah. I guess you have to kind of have a foot yeah. a little bit in both worlds. I think the other thing is growing old gracefully, you know, I'm not like <laughs> 17 anymore. So I think being out there and being, at, again, this is another thing I'm, I'm probably more fascinated in now than I've, I've been at any time in my career, but I do watch like people. I'm mm. fascinated. I, I like the streaming services and I think I'm a big fan of what Circle are doing in France, you know, beautifully shot kind of underground DJs in amazing locations. But I'm just, it's interesting some of the body language of the different characters, you know, some of the, it's almost like the stillness of people is becoming... You know, it's almost what they don't do is actually more fascinating than we all, we all, we've all seen us all jumping around clapping like you know um, <laughs> monkeys, <laughs> especially me. But um, I actually like people now like they just get who are totally like just can be completely the opposite of the EDM like extravaganza and just be still playing records and concentrating. You know, yeah. yeah I- so. What is a secret record that you've been saving for years and? Uh, and I think we'll have to talk after, you know, maybe even mention the, the concept of saving a record or the concept of, because these are things that have changed over time. Uh, you, you know, the idea of keeping a record secret, um, which used to be quite a big thing. Yeah, I mean, when I started, I used to cover the labels up. Yeah, Markers, I mean, stickers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did, we did all that, particularly actually before house music. That was a real big thing. That was a real big thing in the um, soul and jazz funk days. And then there was a whole scene around that was called Rare Groove, which was always about, you know, again, the rarest records that no one else could get, which obviously was a lot easier to do when everything was, was physical and on, on vinyl. Um, or being in the store when only five copies... You know, we were all controlled by basically what was imported and exported around the world, you know. Um, I was always fascinated dance music revolved around the relationship around the record stores like yeah, you're going in the record store making sure the guy the hierarchy the hierarchy put you know the your copy up in your box you know and that no one else could get it and the, and just the sheer rarity of like if there was only 10 copies in chicago to send to london that was it you know and yet when you went to chicago or went or went to detroit or went to new york you'd see the complete opposite you'd go in there and that rare record there was a hundred of them um, and the ones that they couldn't get were the, were the copies of, you know, Pump Up the Volume by Mars or something, you know. That, that <laughs> so it was like the complete reverse, that they, could, they couldn't get the records that we could, we could get. So there was a lot of covering up. Um, but I think, again, first record that kind of popped into my head um, was from the late 80s, like 90. We had a kind of rave era, um, you know, in, in London, when after the famous trip to Ibiza that Paul did with Danny Rampling and Johnny Walker, they we all they all came back and we all, we all got associated to different clubs, and so I started working a lot with Nicky Holloway. And after we did the Astoria for three years and changed its name every year from Trip to Sin to Made on Earth, 
we moved over the road to this little dive bar called the Milk Bar. Um, and I started playing every weekend with as a kind of duo with Dave Durrell, who was a dear friend of mine. Um, Didn't he do the Mars record? Yeah, he did the Mars record. So he was a journalist at the Enemy, and he was like, he was, he was a really good DJ. And he kind of came up in, in the, more in the kind of London underground party scene. And we, we hit it off straight away. Um, so we were residents at, um, at the Milk Bar. And it was a brilliant time for music because it was that whole Balearic kind of expression, you know, really came into its own where we were just playing great records from all different genres. So, you know, obviously it was clearly dominated by House and Acid House. and But we would drop, you know, that you had the whole Belgian new beat scene, which meant you were playing like industrial records by like, DEF and people, people like this, and and like a lot of German influence, like Kraftwerk and stuff like that. And then, um, and one of the rarities at that time was this was this live version of "Just Can't Get Enough" by by Depeche Mode, which you had to have a certain vinyl pack where it was the bonus disc, and it used to be our closing record for a pretty much a year, and just used to send everyone crazy. It was just a simple thing of the first thing that you hear when you put the needle on the record is the crowd noise, and it just simple trick <laughs> but you felt like the because we this club only had about 500 you know it was 500 capacity and um you just play that at the end of the night and it and everybody in the crowd thought that the person next to him was cheering so it's just like yeah, yeah. euphoria <laughs> and then the, the the opening riff starts and the the rest is history so yeah it's depeche mode it's the 1988 live version of um just can't get enough by depeche mode i think they recorded it in germany yeah that's a ridiculously good record yeah. it's amazing i love the i'm not I'm not nostalgic. I mean, yeah. you don't seem like you're particularly nostalgic, yeah. but I have to admit that the idea of, I mean, the, I'd like to be at that party. Yeah. I mean, the idea yeah. of being at a party where I love when, you know, that's what I like about some of the 80s stuff. I love that when, when a monster pop song could also be a monster closing record. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. kind of the holy grail, I think, yeah. a little bit. Absolutely. I think there was no irony then. It was like, oh, we could, well, maybe that's... No, maybe there was irony. It was like the, it was total irony that we could do crazy stuff, and I think Dave really brought that out in our partnership. That he was more the one because I came up with that soul boy kind of jazz funk mentality, um, and we'd all been through hip hop as well. Remember, like we'd all we'd all been playing like um, you know we'd all we all be playing the Beastie Boys and and you know LL Cool J. And um, it's all, all the sleeping bag records as well. So we did, we'd been through that phase as well. But he he just came into it with a, even more. And he he was like a punk. He was his back when I was playing soul records. Dave was was with the Sex Pistols and the Clash. So you know we yeah. just brought but brought the best out of each other. And that really was more of a Dave record to be honest. But and I'm going to give you a special pass to choose a second secret record <laughs> that you've been saving for years. <laughs> Because I really want to hear this story. No, this story is very recent. This is just one of those. I mean, quite often when I'm driving around in, you know, in LA or you know, when I was in the UK, I'd just go and try and find a stupid radio station, mm -hmm. you know, and and like occasionally you just hear records, um, and you think, wouldn't it be great if we could play that? Um, and I, you know, it's, it's always at after parties you hear great records, and Seth Seth Trucks is always a great one for this. Um, I remember being at Coachella at a house party with him like five or six years ago. And it was just a simple thing. He played Fats and Small, Turn It Around. And it's just by far the biggest record of the night. And it was just like absolute. But because it was Seth doing it, he kind of got away with it. Like, and he probably never played that record when it came out. And he just went back to it like with all innocence, thinking that was great energy. So there's a lot of moments in my life where you hear something and you think, God, wouldn't it be great if someone played that? And um, I always had to think about this record because it, it very, it kind of, it's so 80s and there's something very Germanic kind of about it. And I always had it filed away in the back of my head that one day I would play it. And then, sh and then strange, strange enough, last week at the cave, Dixon and Solomon, you know, oh. um, you know, I don't know, 10, 10 hours in or whatever. And this music starts playing, but it's this, this record... I think it's like 105 BP. It's, it's a slow record. The but, intro is a magical. Yeah, so, so this record starts playing, but it's it's seamlessly blended into like a techie kind of moment of like 123 BPM. But it's 
So I don't know what he did to it, but I don't know, or whether we were just like at an after party, like <laughs> ten hours in. But it, it was he was playing it faster, but nothing. It just seemed perfect. So I don't know if he's got a special remix of it. But Solomon played this, and um, I was like, damn, you know, like literally twenty yeah. years thinking I was going to drop this record somewhere, and I never found a re-edit or any. I never got round to doing it myself, and he he played it. So um, hats off to Solomon. This is really his his inspiration, but something I'd I'd always thought of doing. So self control by Laura Branigan. That couldn't it couldn't sum up the the, the idea of those secret or records you yeah. save or, you know, it's strange the reasons why we don't play sometimes records that we really love. Yeah. And anyway, that makes me very happy. Not only do I mean that's one of my favorite records ever. Yeah. Um, what about the break in it? The the it's boom. it's amazing. That, 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 the, you know, it's a cover version. It. Is it? It's oh, a no, cover right, version okay. of an Italian record that was made like this guy Raff. I only know because okay, right. I had these old Raff records, and he, I don't want to say I bit his style, right, but we, okay. anyway, it was an Italian record, an Italo record, which when you listen Raff, to it in that yeah, sense, yeah, it okay. sounds kind of like an Italo record. Yeah, okay. It was within a few months of each okay. other. But um, I love hearing, it makes me yeah. love Solomon, because yeah. I love hearing when people yeah. do the thing you kind of, ah, it's a great record. Um, I've searched since if there's a faster version or a 12 inch version. Yeah, you were probably just 10 hours, you were 10 hours in, and it was just yeah, pitched up. Well, he pitched it up really well. <laughs> what is, I mean, I'm sure you, like a lot of us, you know, we live for the closing record, you know, for that big, that moment at the end of a party. Because there's only really a few records you could even trust in that yeah. moment. It's a very select breed of records that you would entrust to yeah. close out your party. So this is your last party, and this well, is think, your big closing I record. I was quite sad about this, just the thought of it being the last party. Yeah, and, I wanted um, to, yeah how, how would you feel if it was your last party? It's a, it's a tough question. <laughs> I think about yeah. it all the time. Yeah. I think about it like dying, basically. It was, like, it was almost like a funeral kind of thing that maybe that's it'll be because you're dying or you're dead. <laughs> um, yeah, Annie picked, kind of, Annie picked a record. Annie picked two closers, right. and one of them actually was essentially a funeral record. Right, okay. It was a bit yeah, like yeah. that. So I thought about... Um, yeah, my mind went all over the place thinking... Um, you know, it's like a, like if you were dying... You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm quite big on this as well at the moment, like psychedelic kind of... <laughs> It's another pet subject of mine of where we come from and where we're going to. So instead of it being a sad record, I want I wanted it to be a record of like just to step into the unknown and then you know, turning into dust or something and just like floating, you know, jo- rejoining you know the trees and nature and stuff like that. So I got a bit psychedelic about <laughs> thinking about what the record was. And I again, this is another thing that I there was little doubt once I started thinking like that that I, this this was much more back to the days of I, I used to play this and we used to I used to play this as a closing record back in you know the yeah late 80s early 90s and um, it had a huge influence on on people like the Chemical Brothers as well and, and Oasis um, so we go, we're going back to the Beatles I mean I, I, the other record that really nearly made you know was it was nearly Sympathy for the Devil um, by the Rolling Stones because I've played that a lot as well and I actually did re-edits of that and got quite tricky it's with that one. one but I thought no that this this one has a more of a sense of stepping into the unknown of what you know um, so it is the Beatles and it's from um, it's the Beatles um, from from the Revolver album very much in their discovery of psychedelics phase and, and Tomorrow Never Knows which I think says it all you know where we where we going where we headed you know I slept on the Beatles my entire life, and I only heard that uh, in a John Carter set, I think. Oh, right, like okay, one of those yeah. big beat boutique ones, or yeah. maybe Chemical... Or yeah, Chemical which, no, it was the Chemical Brothers, they did a mix CD. Yeah. That's how clueless yeah. I, mean, I was. I mean, Chemical Brothers almost remade the record anyway in um, on their album, Private yeah. Psychedelic Reel or whatever it's called. Um, it's, it's pretty much the same drum pattern. Um, I think the Chems in there, you know, the first three albums, they had one of these tracks <laughs> on, on each album, actually. So, yeah, it was a huge influence on them. Mm. It's a it's a ridiculously yeah. tripped out record. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, your dream party? Where is this party? What does it look like? Um, warehouse. I think no. I think <laughs> the, the I think it has to be like outside on a beach. I think I'm kind of subconsciously gravitated to to that kind of thing. Um, thanks why I love the beach from the very first time I came here was. It was dancing outside. It was the terrace in Amnesia without the roof on. It was it, that. That's just something we couldn't do in England, and it was just so. It just seemed like the high, like a higher evolution of what we were doing. Um, that you'd have to travel somewhere to like here to go and do something like that. 
Um, so I'm so happy now that Ibiza has open air parties again, even though it's still a struggle. I think that's what it still feels like. It's it's not the norm, you know. So I think it would have, for me, it would have to be outside. Um, I've got some great memories of kind of pop up parties on beaches all over the world. So I think on a beach would be good. <laughs> who uh, big fire for this? Who would you trust to be your to set the stage for you? Who would be the opening DJ? Well, not that I wouldn't trust you, but don't, I don't <laughs> trust me. You're better off. <laughs> Um, I'm not the guy I actually for thought the job. about this. I mean, so I picked someone that's still around now. Um, but I think I don't play with him that much, to be honest. But um, I love DJ Harvey. Mm. I think he still obviously uh, embraces the spirit, the pure kind of spirit of what it's all about. He's still like this kind of maverick Merlin kind of record selector, and he can play. He can play anything. He can play anything and make it sound good. And I, I always was fascinated by DJ. I was influenced by DJs like that from the very beginning. All the ones I was attracted to, they could almost play your records better than you could. Yeah. And I think Harvey's one of those guys and he um he can pull out like some wicked rarities as well and some quirky <laughs> mad shit and he can also play but he he can play the Beatles and he can play he can play mainstream stuff as well. So I would trust Harvey just to set it up, you know. There's, there's a small group of people where somehow it's like their personality really does transform the records yeah. they're playing. Yeah, I think I think he has that David Mancuso kind of, you know, just that mad um, selector kind of thing. I have a question. I don't know what he does for the, during the day other than... Like, <laughs> looks for records. Yeah. Um, I do have a question about, you know, I mean, you've been around a while and you've seen, you've seen like hundreds, literally hundreds of artists and DJs come and go. And I mean, it's a difficult question to answer, but uh, the DJs, you know, what is it that you know, for the, the guys that really last and flourish, like yourself or Carl Cox yeah. or whatever, and then there's others that kind of fade, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly from the acid house generation. And, I mean, why? I mean, I know, it's, is it is there a trait or a tenaciousness or, or I don't know? What? I think it's a combination of um, you had to have some magic dust kind of X factor about you that was made you very unique even if you didn't identify it back at the time. And I think you had to evolve over 30, 40 years and still be doing it. You had to also manage the process of being in this world and not burning out or not getting, you know, crazy with, you know, drugs, drink or, you know, after parties and just keep, keep you know, keeping yourself together to, to kind of handle it all. So I think it's a combination of, and a bit of luck probably yeah. as well. But I think Carl is amazing. I mean, he's he's like, he's he's probably almost the polar opposite of me. It's it's pure energy and fun. I mean, I I, I watched him. <laughs> he just loves it. He's just I know. absolute. I've never, you never. I think that's that's his thing. You know, he people just love the fact that he's loving it so much. I think it is. You know? It's incredible. I I also feel like I'm kind of the opposite. Yeah, he's just pure joy, and yeah. um, he's a joy to watch, and he's. He's probably one of the few DJs I can watch. And it's not really even about what he plays, you know. He doesn't really want to hear that probably, but um, <laughs> it's just the way he plays them. And he's one of those DJs. Like, he's just, he has a way of mixing two records together that has a sound. Mm. Um, and there's very few people that have that. Um, yeah, he's... But he has it. And his thing is beyond the music. It's like just watching him do it is half of it, you know. You know, I think people are starting to appreciate that now, that um, maybe there's a bit of a renaissance around people like him that you realize there's not many people like that. No, they're not. <laughs> you know. I think also, too, I, I, a word I comes to mind, I know there's certain... There's something I kind of wish I had more of, but yeah. it's like a generosity. You yeah. know, there are these guys that are like, they're genuinely... At this point, it can't be about the money. It can't yeah. be about the... It's actually really like sharing that energy. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a real... It's a sincere thing. Yeah. It's pretty rare. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, who is at your dream party? I mean, what is your idea of a perfect crowd? <laughs> is it beautiful people? Is it... I don't know. You know, everybody has a different idea of... When you look out there, who's out there? You know? that's, a, that's a weird question. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, I mean, you want, you want a mixture of of friends and family and um, familiar faces, but also the crowd, I guess. I mean, that's, yeah. it is you, a know, weird know, knowing, um, you know, knowing that you've got the best people, that the people that love music, the people that really appreciate what, what you're doing and why we're, why we're all there dancing together, enjoying the music together. Um, people that are tuned in, you know, probably one of the underlying um, 
anxieties when when you play in a place like Ibiza for for as long as I have is knowing that even though you're playing and the club's pretty full, that the really cool people are actually yeah. somewhere else. <laughs> so I think, you know, I've had moments in my time in Ibiza where I, I knew absolutely I had the best people and I've definitely had moments where I know, you know, that Marco Carolla had the best people. So it's like, you know... Well, you get the, I best, think, I you get when, the best people for your yeah, dream party. I think you, you just want to know that you've got the best people, yeah, that, that everybody in there is really a fan of the music mm. and, and, yeah, that's, you know, because we... You know, we, we do often play in clubs that are half full of people that are there for different reasons, you know. That's, that's the whole phenomenon of the table business around clubs, I think, brought in a whole different... Yeah. You know. That's tricky. I always remember a few... I knew Ibiza had gone to a whole another level when a few years ago, maybe five, I remember going to um, Fuck Me I'm Famous and being with Getter and then going through the VIP and seeing people go crazy and like loving him and cameras out and everything like that and then and then the very next night um being at amnesia with marco carolla where the music was like you know 360 degrees <laughs> of separation and consciously bumping into the same crowd at, at a table with their cameras out going absolutely mad it was like, <laughs> it's like there's just no way they just they just don't know so, that's yeah. very, that's totally different. Um, for your dream party, your last party, I'm going to give you a, a, a gift, which is a, a VIP pass. You can invite anybody, living or dead, and let's assume they will actually show up. You get to invite some special yep. person to be in the crowd um, or in the booth. Yeah, I, I think first name popped into my head was just because I'm reading two books at the moment that have absolutely blown my mind. You know, I've never done psychedelics. Um, no? But I'm, but I'm, no, I haven't. I've never so sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I and I um, missed that one. Missed that bus. Really? Was, yeah. But I just the whole notion now that. Oh, what, are you what, reading How to Change Your Mind? Yeah, yeah. Michael ah, Pollan. Ah, yeah. okay, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, and the God Molecule. molecule. Got it. So, and so there's two books, and I'm I'm halfway through both of them. Because he also had missed that boat. He missed and, that boat. But so the boat's not gone forever. Yeah. So, <laughs> but so I think I'm going to follow his story probably. But I, I just think I'm just fascinated by the whole thing that you know. In the late 50s, this was medicine. You know, mm. this was a medical, like, revelation and discovery. And by the time Timothy Leary turns up at Harvard and starts almost, like, promoting it, that it gets shut down, you know, by the paranoia, particularly in America. Um, but the fact that this was actually seen to be... I never, I never knew that. I just yeah. completely missed that. Well, that this it's, was actually, it's not an accident that you never yeah. knew it. It's and, the, and then, obviously, now, slowly but surely, it's kind of creeping back up through the underground. And it, we seem to be heading back to mm. that place where it it's kind of medical so I, I got into meditation about 10 years ago and I did the um, trans transcendental course the, da the David Lynch one and you gotta then, tell us your mantra right now online no, no I can't do that I know, <laughs> I know it's not allowed yeah. you know I, I have sleep I have nightmares about forgetting it really you know, and I do often forget After it but, 10 years? but it's never gone no, I actually no, don't know what no, I, so no the cartoon I don't why know I, aren't they sounds isn't yeah, it supposed it's a sound, to but no, it's but Sanskrit then, I tell you why I nearly forgot it because then um, we don't got, tell in, me we got it. into um, in more an Indian version like with this guy Sadhguru and we did a whole yoga thing and it was a different thing and I stopped doing it the way I learned to do it at the beginning so I always think I'm going to forget it but you never do it's, do you do twice a day or once a day I, I, once a day you know if that, if that, to be honest. It's Sadhguru method, you're meant to be twice a day religiously. But anyway, that's, as you know, the, the paths um, start to diverge to the same place. Um, so I got really interested in, in the whole psychedelic business. So I thought, well, what fun it would be to invite Timothy Leary <laughs> to come. Well, yeah, he's the guy. <laughs> he's the guy that actually got it all shut down. Um, so I was quite intrigued by um, just reading about him and that, and that group. And the fact that it was all so based around education and learning and science and med and medicine and yeah yeah about yeah learning yeah. is a key yeah. word it's essentially yeah. about yeah. learning about yourself too so so a guy i um i met at a meditation what well, there's a guy at wme actually that i met at, who's who meditates and um he was a bit of a old school agent like rock star and his wife got really into it and i actually met her at a course in 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 la and then um he'd never been to ibiza before and I bumped into him on a flight in May coming out here. And, I, and I, the first thing he says to like meditate is like, you, you're still meditating? <laughs> like, he said, yeah, I am. But like, have you tried the toad? <laughs> and like, 
And uh, I said, no, what are you talking it's about? Like short, he said, like, grab my arm. It's a shortcut. You've got, you've, got to, you've got to try to toad. It will change your life. Like, it's really short. Like, no ego. Like, you've got to... It was like, he suddenly went off on one way. Like, what, the, what are you talking about? And he, and he kind of let... Then we got separated, like, as people were leaving the plane. And, um, and I was like, what's he, what's he talking about? So I quickly like, started googling and um got rapidly to meo dmt and oh, yeah. that, that took me down oh, that's the, whole, the god molecule right? that's the god molecule so i'm re- so i've quickly ordered that book how, how great is amazon you know next day <laughs> i had it and it's a little pamphlet basically and then i heard that the, the the guy it's a mexican guy um gabriel he's got four names um can't remember his name but he he's farming these toads um, and down in in the southern Mexico, and he's like the only guy in the world doing it. And his book's like a crazy trip from when he was like twelve years old to like he's like forty odd now. He's done everything you could possibly do. So Timothy Leary is at your party. Now we have, <laughs> now we have. If he brings his tricks or not? Yeah, he will. <laughs> he will. So now it's uh, the aftermath. There's an after party, and uh, I guess you're going to attend the after party. Yeah, I thought I was dead. I thought I was going, you know, but anyway. No, no, you, after yeah, the yeah, after party. After party yeah. Who DJs your after party? I think it has to be Sven Baith, someone I've known for an awful long time, but only got to know a lot better quite recently. Um, I don't know. He's, I think he kind of invented the whole notion for me um, of what an after party is all about and how to play at an after party. I think his DJ style is massively kind of influenced by what he does at after parties and he kind of developed yeah he's just he's just to me he kind of wrote the book on it really i think i think there is an element of that i thought about again the loft kind of mancuso's kind of thing but i think we've kind of covered that probably with with harvey doing the warm-up there are definitely lines crossed there somewhere in terms of the style but to me sven just has the record box to kind of take you to another dimension <laughs> yeah so and he seamlessly and, and endlessly you know he can he can dj forever you know he can dj in all different states of mind and inebriation yeah. <laughs> like you're in good hands he's, he's he's a warrior he's an absolute total warrior yeah well i guess in a lot of, it's yeah. parallel to what you said about a, a supervised experience yeah 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 do you trust sven yeah you, know, you can't really push him off the decks <laughs> no yeah so what happens the next day after all the years and the thousands of parties, if it were to end? I guess what would you, what would you do? I mean, with the freed up bandwidth, you know, what, yeah. what's something that you imagine would be in the, the next chapter? You know, when I started DJing as a kid, it wasn't considered to be a job. It was a mm-hmm. hobby. So kind of some pressure from parents but also just common sense that um if i was going to pursue my hobby i had to get a proper job so that led me to journalism which led you know coincided with radio i started to get too many jobs quite quickly which is kind of the way my whole life's gone so i've always been short of time you know i ended up joining a record company in 1983 that took me all the way through to like 2001 so for the first time at like 40 years old i became a full-time dj and after a few years of that, of traveling around the world, um, I was almost looking for something else to do, believe yeah. it or not. And it, it was like, it was the wrong age, obviously, to become a full-time DJ for the first time. <laughs> um, and it cost me in life quite a bit. So I, I, got, I end up getting day jobs again, which, which leads me back into working with WME um, for the last 10 years. So I think where, where my mind was going with this when it's all over is, is just freedom of not having to turn up to do something or you know even radios like which have been a brilliant thing for me my whole life there is a ball and chain aspect of Definitely. radio that you can't ever switch off there's always another show to do so i think when it's all over it's just this this sense of not having any um responsibility work-wise and just riding off into the distance i i think I've got an obsession with psychedelics now I had, a, I had an obsession about climbing Everest and Did so you? I read all you know into, into thin air that John oh, Clark, yeah. even though it's about a disaster I kind of had this thing like you know a long a while ago that I thought I should definitely do that once in my life I and I just got annoyed with I, I have a lot of these things and I never do them you know and I um I, I, I want to go on the longest charity rides I want to go and you know and I never seem to have the time to just drop out and do that a couple of years ago, I rode for charity for one week on my bike um, from LA to San Francisco. And it's one of the best experiences I've ever had, just being able to be in the zone, doing something completely different for a week and doing it for a good cause. So 
I think it's it's riding off on my bike and go well, see. go and climb some like the Tour de France mountains or the, you know or do or just go and do go on an adventure somewhere and not come back. <laughs> I loved uh, in the email you answered me. I just have in in all caps. I get on my bike and ride <laughs> off into the mountains, which there I thought go. was quite a yeah. is kind of beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. I think that's one of the hidden costs of DJing is you're on this weird. You have kind of a lot of freedom on one end, but you're also perpetually on this week-to-week, month-to-month schedule, yep. and time starts to move differently, I find. You know, time just slips away. It goes very yep. quickly. Um, but I, when I was, you know, doing a bit of research and following your career a little bit, I, w- I think one of your giant successes seems to be, and it's very difficult, is moving on from successful things. You know, like having successful chapters, different yep. things, and then still being able to move on from that, which a lot of people don't do. They get really bogged down. So I think you're you're riding off into the sunset on DMT on your bicycle. Yeah, I think you'll be good at it. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine With a it'll... toad or a, mus- or a bag of mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. It'll go great. <laughs> um, I, uh, it to Mexico, clearly. To, of course, say it, to the toad farm. Yeah. I just want to say, you know, it's it's always awkward when you're in front of somebody, but you've really... You've introduced probably more people to more music, including myself, over the years, and it's really something uh, I want to say thank you for because right, it's. Thank uh, you, appreciate and it. And I think yeah. that at this stage, to still be so kind of curious and learning and still passionate about music, I think is is wonderful. And uh, you've been very generous with your time, and thank you very okay, much. Thanks. Sorry about the food blender. And the, yeah, we got a whole bunch. Yeah, we, there's, there's no quiet trying to beat for anymore, is there? <laughs> no. Like, anyway, there you thank go. you. Thank you, Pete. I'll go and put my sunglasses on at night. <laughs> oh, I got the last. I got the last one. <laughs> For rights reasons, my legal team has told me that we can't include audio in the podcast, but you can find all the tracks that we talk about on our SoundCloud and Spotify pages. Also, a note that some of these episodes were recorded in the summer of 2018, so don't freak out if the parties they're talking about have already happened, or if people have passed away or if there's some other small inconsistencies. We will all just have to do our best to accept that. This has been Pete Tong's Last Party on Earth with me, your host, Tiga. You gotta know you're gonna want to join me the next time when I'll be joined by Carl Cox. Last Party.